Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, China expert Margaret McQuaig Johnson has five ways Canada can tackle Chinese interference in our elections. Second Street think tank president Colin Craig has new numbers on how Canada could displace Russia as a fuel supplier. Tech expert Andy Brar says, yes, it may be time to check and possibly delete your Twitter DMs. And Condominium Homeowners Association Director Tony Joventu looks at the many unintended consequences of the new rules removing rent restrictions on stratas. So, let's get started. Good morning and welcome back to Professor Margaret McQuaig Johnson, a senior fellow at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs and a good friend of this program. Joining us this morning from Ottawa, Professor McQuaig Johnson. Margaret, good morning and welcome back. Thanks very much, Sterling. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you with us. It always is fun. I'm very curious. I'm, I'm looking at an article that you wrote very recently at theconversation.com entitled Five Ways for Canada to Tackle Chinese Interference After the Trudeau-Xi Showdown. So, Margaret, let's begin with that showdown. I'm very curious about your reaction to the uh, apparent dressing down by the president of China of the prime minister of Canada while the whole world watched. Right. Well, this uh, this actually unfolded over two meetings between Trudeau and Xi. They weren't formal meetings. They were just, um, you know, they ran into one another in the big meeting room where people were milling around. Mm-hmm. They were caught on camera. Um, so, so we know in the first one, the Prime Minister raised a number of issues, including foreign interference. And there's been a lot of discussion here in Canada about China's uh, interference in a number of uh, fronts. And, uh, and then the second one, uh, Xi himself talked to the Prime Minister about he should not have revealed to the media right. what they had talked about. And it, it was interesting to see that, in fact, the prime minister stuck to his guns and and, uh, and said, you know, uh, we may disagree on some things, but we want to have a constructive um, relationship. And uh, so he, he really didn't accept the dressing down that she tried to give him. Uh, body language experts, uh, very interesting in terms of the way she uh, presents himself and, and conducted himself during that, for example, not exactly ever looking at Trudeau eye contact wise and lecturing rather than than conversing. Uh, nonetheless, in this article that, uh, that you've written very recently, and it's a good one, it's a great reason to have you back on the show, you recommend five steps that the government of Canada, which is continuing to present itself as being somewhat bad baffled by all of this uh, Chinese interference going on at so many different levels all at once, and the Prime Minister only admitting to knowing certain facts and certain realities, you come across with five steps in taking action, and uh, a lot of that involves in something, actions, Margaret, that you say probably should have been started a long time ago. What's step one? Well, step one is to investigate um, the the allegations against um, um, a, a, a Toronto businessman that he was actually 
feeding $250,000 into 11 candidates in uh, the 2019 election. Mm -hmm. And that's very serious. This was a story broken by the stellar uh, investigative reporter, Sam Cooper. And uh, and so this is this is extremely serious. It's illegal for people in other countries to fund our elections, to fund candidates. Um, in addition, there was an allegation that uh, there were staffers put in by by Chinese interests into various members of parliament's offices, mm-hmm. and uh, in order to impact policy in China's favor. That, too, has to be investigated, and they need to go back to the security clearances and and look much more carefully at them. And then third, the one thing that the prime minister said he had raised with Xi specifically was this story of police stations uh, in Canada. Yes. Three, three Chinese police stations in the Toronto area, and I understand there's uh, at least uh, one more in uh, Vancouver. You bet. <clears throat> so these are storefronts for um, Chinese police authorities to put pressure on the Chinese diaspora, in some cases to return to China to stand trials, or in the case of the Uyghurs, to return to China to go through this, the the um, indoctrination camps and p- potentially go to prison for what they've said against China in the past. That's very serious, and the RCMP is an investigating. There are investigations of that in 13 other countries as well. These things are all over the world. Uh, but as of yesterday morning, um, the RCMP still had not contacted the uh, human rights organization based in Europe who broke this story. And uh, so they really need to get on top of that. But that's the first thing the government needs to do is ensure these police investigations uh, move quickly. I think a lot of Canadians would agree with you on that. We had Marcus Kolga on with us last Saturday, and he talked about something that you mentioned as item number four on your list of five. Marcus talked about the Foreign Influence Registry Act. It's a, a fact in Australia and other countries around the world. It allows at least uh, the recognition of foreign agents in our midst to declare themselves as such, Right. That's right. And there have been calls for many years uh, to have uh, such a registry. Kenny Chu, who's a B.C. uh, former MP, uh, actually introduced legislation in the House um, to bring in such a registry. And uh, the impact of that was to have Chinese interests bombard WeChat with messages against Kenny Chu saying he was anti-China, which he's not. Mm -hmm. And then, and he lost the election as a consequence. It's really tragic. Uh, but, you know, he was he was uh, impacted directly by the same kind of misinformation and disinformation. He said uh, was um, you know rampant from Chinese state authorities. Right, and and it could have affected up to eleven seats in that last election. The final item of your short list of five is to do something the Brits have already done, Margaret, and that's uh, talking about the National Security Act. What did the Brits do? So that's a much broader um, bill that's uh, within their umbrella National Security Act. And it would deter foreign interference and increase penalties. Right now in Canada, the penalty for interfering with our election 
is um, is a $250,000 fine and uh, and six months in jail. Those are the maximums, mm. which may not deter um, you know some Chinese authorities. So, and we, we need to be looking at if if it's true that the Toronto consulate has interfered in our election, which. Uh, Melanie Jolie uh, called intolerable, and Marco Mendocino, the the public safety minister, said anyone will face serious consequences. If uh, employees at the consulate uh, are guilty of doing this, they must be uh, deported from Canada. All right, Margaret, final question to you. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time, and it's uh, always a treasure to have you on the show. What sort of real appetite do you sense for some kind of immediate action by the government of Canada? 38 million Canadians want them to take in terms of telling China to, enough already. It's You're done. It's time to deal with a new reality. Well, I, I see is, um, indications that the government is is becoming much more aware of the geopolitical risks that China presents. Um, The foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, made a speech uh, in Toronto a couple of weeks ago outlining some of the uh, geopolitical risks. And she's going to be unveiling Canada's Indo-Pacific policy, uh, we believe, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Okay. Vancouver, and we'll hear more about it then. All right. Margaret McQuaig-Johnson has written a terrific article, friends. It's at theconversation.com. It's five ways for Canada to tackle Chinese interference after the Trudeau-Xi showdown. Margaret, a pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks ever so much for making yourself available to us. Thanks, Sterling. Here's a quote from our next guest in an article online. Quote, Putin is paying for his rockets and tanks by selling oil and natural gas to the world. Canada could take a big bite out of Russia's military funding by stealing many of Putin's oil and natural gas customers. It can't happen overnight, but we need to remember the world is facing a long-term problem with Russia. This is part of a a release of an analysis by SecondStreet.org. It's a think tank uh, that takes a look at Canada and Russia, and the headline says it all. Quote, Canada could displace half of Russian energy. Here to talk more about this report is the president of SecondStreet.org. A pleasure to welcome Colin Craig to the program. Mr. Craig, Colin, good morning. Well, good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Colin. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this analysis. What was the, the modus operandi? You talked to uh, people in the oil and gas industry. Uh, you took a look at short, medium, and long-term possibilities that Canada, uh, roles that Canada could play in the, in the global uh, petro sector. Talk to us a, a little bit about how the report got put together. Sure. Well, I I guess the start of this uh, came from the horrific images that we've seen and the horrific news stories we've heard coming out of Ukraine. Sure. Um, Everyone's familiar with those. It's absolutely appalling what's happening over there. And so we thought about the old expression, follow the money. And of course, that leads one to understand that Russia is paying for the tanks and the rockets that they're using by uh, selling oil and gas to the world. So we thought, well, you know, a lot of people had commented that Canada could be the supplier that nations could buy their oil and gas from instead of Russia. Sure. Uh, that's been talked about a lot. We thought, well, how much can Canada actually produce? If we made it a priority as a country to offer the world an ethical supply of oil and gas so they don't have to buy from a regime like Putin, 
what can we do? And so we, we ended up serving about eight experts in the oil and gas sector. These are people that uh, quite often media will turn to for comment. And we said, can you give us some estimates? What can we do in the short term, the medium term, and the long term? Mm-hmm. And we then averaged what they told us and compared that with what Russia's producing or exporting, rather, in the short, medium, and long term. So we could understand how much of a bite we could take out of uh, uh, Putin's oil and gas sales. And the short term being in, in the next year, medium term, Colin, being in the next three to five years, and then long term, then you're out seven to ten years down the road. Clearly, uh, we're not in a position to do much right now because we're not able to get product to Tidewater. So in the short term, uh, our ability to do much is, is quite limited. What did your experts tell you about uh, going out a little further than just one year from now, Colin? Well, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, you, you can't just build a pipeline overnight, as we all know. But once you start looking in that, that medium to long term, then it really starts to increase in terms of how much we can displace of uh, Russians' energy sales. Medium term, you're looking at around 18 19% for natural gas and oil, uh, crude oil. Um, and then once you get into that longer term period, so by the end of the decade, we could be displacing about 46% of Russian crude and about 59% of uh, Russian natural gas. So that's very significant, especially when we consider that we're one country. If, if other nations step up, like the United States and others, well, we could really take a very huge bite out of uh, the, the size of uh, Russia's uh, energy exports. And, you know, the, the one thing I think we all need to focus on is that this is not a short-term problem. In the short term, we have Russia has invaded Ukraine. We have to do what we can, I think, to, to help out the people of Ukraine. But over the long term, who on earth wants to be buying energy from Russia, say, five years from now, ten years from now? Uh, the world needs these resources. All the long-term forecasts say that we're going to be using oil and natural gas for decades to come. So right. the question of... Where do we get it? And, and this is where Canada does have an opportunity to step up, but it, it, it would fundamentally need a require a different way of thinking and behavior uh, among governments in Canada. We, we can't keep turning down pipeline requests and blocking new projects. We fundamentally have to... Uh, start greenlighting those if we're going to make a difference. Yeah, I was just going to say, the, the report says a key assumption is that our country makes it a priority to develop and export more resources, and clearly the priority right now of the current government is exactly the opposite. Yes, yeah, no, for sure. And, and the report is very much focused on what is possible. What could we do if right. we as a nation stepped up to the plate and said, look, we have the resources the world needs. We want to make sure the world can buy them from an ethical country like us instead of uh, a tyrant like Russia and some of the other ones that the world is dependent on right now. So, you know, I, I think, you know, when I talk about long term, we have to consider, too, well, who will Putin attack next? Right. I mean, he's done this a couple times now with Ukraine. Is he going to go after a, a NATO country next? Is he going to saber rattle in the Arctic? Like I was just going to say, past? we're already seeing more incursions into Canadian Arctic space in the last six months than we have in the last six years, Colin. Yeah, exactly. So I think we need to be mindful of that. And out of our own self-interest, if we start to take some of those dollars away from Mr. Putin, then he has fewer dollars to potentially be aggressive in the Arctic with us. So there is that benefit. The big question is the environmental side, because that, that's the holdup. And I think there's a good argument that this could be an opportunity to really help out the environment, too. So a lot of countries, as you know, uh, and your listeners know, they're using coal power right now. 
coal emits twice as much in terms of emissions compared with uh, uh, cleaner burning natural gas. So if, if we can get our natural gas to some countries that are using coal, we can actually help reduce emissions. So that's one thing. The other thing is when we start to develop and export more uh, oil and gas products, that would unleash a huge, huge amount of tax revenues for governments. And they could use some of those dollars to support carbon tech, mm-hmm. technology that is reducing emissions. There are ways that governments can help companies out. There's some very fascinating and amazing things that entrepreneurs are doing to reduce emissions. And this could be an opportunity for Canada to really help that uh, that technology move along. Colin, in terms of the appetite by the government of Canada, I sense zero in terms of any kind of cooperation in this regard on this file at all. Do you think, however, in, in piled on top of the ongoing atrocities in Ukraine, if we start seeing our friends and allies in Europe, right across Europe, not just Ukraine, which is which is going to really have an awful winter, but a lot of Europeans are going to have a, a, a lower grade quality winter because they're going to have to be dealing with fuel shortages and brownouts and whatnots. Do you think after watching this happen for a, a, a cold, nasty European winter, some Canadians may have a rethink in terms of absolutely not? Or is this just going to uh, solidify positions? You know, I don't think... Uh the issue is so much with Canadians, it's with Ottawa, because we've done public opinion research on this, and 72% of Canadians say, yes, we need to step up to the plate, we need to develop and export more resources so the world doesn't have to depend on Putin. So the, the problem is not so much uh, you and I and your listeners, it's some of the, the men and women that are sitting in uh, Parliament right now, because uh, as we've discussed, the, the federal government has taken a completely different approach to this. And I, I think at some point they, they need to be a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their, their focus is on green tech and all that. And that, that's, that's great. But we have to be realistic in the short term. Uh, even in the medium and long term, we're still going to be using oil and gas. That's just the reality. All the major forecasts out there, Paris-based International Energy Agency, the big energy information agency in the U.S., I mean, they're both saying that for decades to come, we're going to be using natural gas and oil. So uh, the question is, who does the world buy it from? They could buy it from a country like us. We're ethical. We're not going to take the money and use it to attack other nations. We could use the money to help reduce emissions and develop that technology. Or the world continues to buy from Putin. Yeah. And we know what he does with the money. That's that's the choice we have to make. And I think that's the decision that Ottawa needs. To and I think it's going to crystallize over the wintertime, too. Friends, you can find lots more of this at secondstreet.org. Secondstreet, all one word, dot org. This story in particular, Canada could displace half of Russian energy. Colin Craig is the president of secondstreet.org. Colin, thanks very much for being with us today. Good to have you on the show, sir. Well, thanks a lot, Sterling. I appreciate your, your time and for uh, bringing, uh, talking about this issue. I think it's an important one. Uh, I think it's important, too. We appreciate it. Secondstreet.org. Well, this came up on Twitter just a couple of days ago from a cybersecurity expert on Twitter. He says, it's time. Delete your Twitter DMs. It doesn't stop Twitter storing their own copy, but does reduce the ways in which they can screw up and leave your private messages exposed. This warning coming after Elon Musk has fired hundreds of Twitter engineers and senior executives over the past few weeks. And some believe this has exposed the social media website to cyber attacks and the, the changes that are going 
going on, uh, heightening the risk of a break-in. Here to talk about this, is this a little too paranoid, or is this guy actually on mark? Always a pleasure to say good morning to Andy Brar from Handy Andy Media. Talk to us a little bit about, uh, well, all this digital lifestyle stuff. Andy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. So what do you think? Is the, is, uh, the security expert, the cybersecurity guy who's, uh, uh, who believes it's time to start deleting direct mails, Twitter direct mails, uh, is that a little, a little too paranoid from where you're sitting this morning, or is he about on target? Well, let's put it this way, Sterling. If you are a hacker and your dream has been to infiltrate Twitter and, and to hack Twitter for, for like street cred amongst your other hackers, now would be the time because Elon Musk has fired pretty much half of his staff or people have resigned. His chief information security officer, whose sole job is to prevent Twitter from being hacked, mm-hmm. has left. His head of trust and safety has left and resigned. So he's also he's also been wiping out a lot of code inside of Twitter. He called in the coding language they call it bloatware, unnecessary codes. However, the reason those codes are there is that there's a reason for it. And one of the things that cybersecurity analysts have noticed is that the two-factor authentication, which basically happens if you were to log on on a different computer in a different country, usually that gets flagged that it could be something suspicious. Sure. So it would actually get you to do a two-factor authentication to verify yourself off your phone, sending you a text mm-hmm. or an email. Well, that's gone and, and for a lot of people. And so the code has been wiped out, leaving Twitter vulnerable. So I, I definitely think if there's anything that could happen to people, it would be your direct messages because those are the private messages that you're having with your Twitter followers. And and that's basically you have to look at and see what you've talked about in those private messages because those kind of things, if it got to the wrong people – could leave you exposed and vulnerable. And chances are you're going to say things in your private messaging that you might not necessarily say very publicly on Twitter, right? Absolutely. It's just like your your text messages with your friends. Imagine that goes onto the 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 front page of the New York Times. Um, you know, a lot of us we 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 are you know, very casual in the way that we talk, and we probably don't want those conversations to be public. Sure. And that's the same with the direct messages because those are completely private between you and that person that is talking. And and we've collected these. Twitter's been around for a long time, Sterling. We've collected a lot of these side chats uh, through the direct messages. And, you know, if, if, if you are concerned about your privacy, definitely wipe those out um, right now because you're, you're going to be potentially vulnerable to being hacked. You see it on Twitter all the time. You know, so you make a statement and then you go, you, know, you got something to say about it, DM me. So what's, what's the usage of direct mails? In, tw- in terms of Twitter users, Andrew, does everyone use their DM equally or uh, do, do most people not bother? What, what's the ratio there? Well, typically for the direct messages, this is a person that you're following and they're following you back. And you might see something that they've tweeted and you want to talk to them or, you know, or maybe even share a link with somebody, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you don't want to do it publicly so everyone else can see. That's when you do a DM. It's kind of like if you were at a conference and you're, you're in this like, conference room and then you go to the side, like into the hallway to have a private conversation with somebody. It's very similar to that, except it's all online. And, you know, I was just thinking of all the different conversations that I've had on my direct message. I was looking through it. Right. And I can tell you there's a lot of stuff there that I wouldn't want public. And, you know, I'm going to take this advice and just clear it out because – 
frankly, a lot of those messages I was looking, I really don't need them. So it's only leaving me vulnerable in the event that Twitter was to get hacked or somebody wanted to hack into my account because there's two things that could happen. They could try to impersonate you on Twitter and publicly say stuff, or they could see what you've been saying privately on Twitter and then make that public. So I think it is good advice to to look at your Twitters. And for a lot of people, Sterling, they they just want to leave Twitter. Sure. And you can actually archive in the settings. You can archive and and download everything that you've tweeted. So your whole records. And this is why I like Twitter, Sterling, because imagine in the future, generations from now, you could look and see what your grandma or grandpa tweeted about for like world events. And hmm. You know, I, I, I hope Twitter stays, but it's funny because I'm on Twitter these days, Sterling, to find out what's happening on Twitter Interesting, and, and yeah. the latest Twitter news. It really has replaced my the newspaper in the morning to get the, the latest news. Indeed it is. Another quote here from another cybersecurity guy. Twitter is in chaos. I'd rather delete my direct messages one by one than one day find they're in the hands of a hacker or disgruntled former employee. Do you have to, if you're going to, if you're going to go and you say you're thinking about it seriously yourself, if you're going to delete your DMs, do you actually have to go and, and delete them one by one? Is it a tedious process? Well, it really depends on how many direct messages you have. But, <laughs> I suppose. But, but, but it does make sense because you want to be able to kind of look like some stuff you might – there might be information in there. And this is why people get worried about losing their text messages because you might have like someone's address sure. or a phone number that you, you would want to keep. So it makes sense to kind of go through your DMs, you know, pour a cup of coffee, start looking at all the conversations that you have and manually delete the ones that you don't want. Um, or you could just delete them all and just try to wipe everything out. But I, I, I hope that, you know, Elon Musk takes the security very seriously for Twitter because he it looks like next week he's going to relaunch uh, his verification system with right. different colors. So he's going to have one color check mark for government, one for corporations, and one for individuals. But he wants everyone to still pay because he took a $44 billion loan to buy Twitter. He has a $1 billion annual interest payment. So he needs to make money fast. And he's already lost his advertisers. So he's looking for new revenue streams. And he's doing something that no one in social media has done. And that's to make social media a subscription service. Very similar to something that we are accustomed to with Netflix. But he's trying to do that with social media now. And time will only tell if people will actually pay to use Twitter. Interesting stuff. And time to check those DMs and have a second look at what you might want the world to see or not. Andy Brar, always a pleasure. It's been so long. It's good to have you back. Oh, thanks, Sterling. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Rental bylaws and all current age restriction bylaws that are not 55 and over will no longer be enforceable by strata councils, according to new legislation proposed by Premier David Eby in the past few days. Here to talk more about it is the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Tony Juventu. Buongiorno, Tony. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? It's great to hear your voice. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Mr. Juventu. What is the position of CHOA, the Condominium Homeowners Association, on this whole business of removal of uh, rental restrictions on all strata properties province-wide? So this is a little bit of a challenge, especially for the smaller strata corporations. Um, we have 34,000 strata corporations across the province. And as you know, they're everything from duplexes up to almost 1,200 units. 
And about 22,000 of them are 50 units or less. They're self-managed. And this is where the lion's share of the rental restriction bylaws are. There, there are a significant number of large buildings that also have rental restrictions, but they, but like most buildings, they allow a certain percentage of 10% or 15%. Um, as of yesterday, this is now law. Their rental bylaws are no longer enforceable, and um, you don't have to repeal them or do anything about them, but you just have to realize as a strata corporation, it's open season now on rentals speculators and buyers in your building. So is, is, uh, have there been, I'm sure you've been approached by more than one strata corporation since this whole business began, Tony, uh, because the only, as I understand it, the only thing that's grandfathered away from the legislation is a strata group that is specifically designed for persons 55 and over. So how many calls have you had at CHOA in the last few days from strata corporations going, how do we redefine ourselves as being 55 and older? Well, well, that alone is the interesting question because we really have been um, absolutely peppered with calls. I, I think we've had close to 130 calls from across the province in the last three days of strata corporations saying, so it's okay for us to adopt a 55 and over bylaw. Right, right. right. And, you know, so, and, and it is. They can if they can get a three-quarters vote to pass it. But, I'm, you know, this was one of the unintended consequences that everyone was, was warning government about, that we're going to see that strata corporations are going to shift um, and they're going to take other measures. And this isn't really a housing affordability solution either. This is one of the, the misconceptions um, that was raised. You know, government was talking that this provides another 2,900 potential affordable housing units. Condos aren't affordable. By time, if you're a landlord, by the time you pay your mortgage, you pay your strata fees, your taxes, your insurance, and any other assessments or levies that come through, it's costly to rent and to operate a strata as a rental unit. Right. So if you look closely at the market, there are... Um, uh, plenty of one-bedroom and two-bedroom condo units available, but the rent, even in Kelowna um, or Prince George, the rent is starting at $1,800 a month. So it's it's not affordable housing. And if you're looking for a family a family unit, um, if you can find a townhouse that's available, that's a two- or three-bedroom unit place, you're looking at $2,500, $3,000 a month and it's not within the, the, the metro area. It's outside in the, in the rural area. So you know, this isn't even a solution to, to affordable housing. Uh, we can foresee all kinds of consequences. Hopefully, this is not going to result in a real complicated problem for the smaller stratas. But, you know, as a buyer, think about this as a buyer. Okay. You used to go into a strata where it was rental um, restricted or there was just a limited number of rentals. You knew when you got in there what that was going to be. When you were when you were buying, you were competing with other people with the same intention, which was to live in the building. Mm-hmm. That competition is now gone. You will be competing with investors and speculators looking for rental units. And surprisingly enough, I actually had, after the legislation came into to full effect yesterday, I had about five calls from realtors and investors saying, so it's okay to buy now, I can rent, Right. And so, like, this is, you know, I, I expected we'd wait six months or a year to see the effect of this. It's pretty quick. They're coming right off the sidelines almost immediately. Uh, they are. They are. They are. And, they, and we know from, you know, current um, stats from uh, the National Bank that there is um, 
that there's lots of cash out there in the market. Mm-hmm. So we know that there's a lot of people that will be looking for investment opportunities. So, you know, I think it's going to, I think what's going to happen is it's going to become a harder market on an affordability basis for families to get into condos. Mm-hmm. Interesting. As is typically the case when politicians try to intervene to make things more affordable, prices go up. Tony, I wanted to ask you about the family aspect of all of this. There are, there are some strata corporations that disallow children. And if you, a young couple, move into or own one of these uh, units and suddenly there's a child yeah, and you have to move because, well, we live in a, a no-kid area. Is that rule also gone? Yeah, that bylaw is no longer enforceable. So the only age bylaw for occupancy is 55 and over. Plus, look closely at the new laws and the regulation. You must also accommodate things like living caregivers or support workers. So it's not just a 55 and over. And that, you know, there's a number of ways of adopting age restriction bylaws. For example, the bylaw may say the principal um, occupant must be 55 and over, which leaves flexibility for other family Mm -hmm. members or other people. So, you know, there are a variety of ways of doing this. But, you know, there was a lot of ambiguity around these multiple age limits of 19 and over, 35 and over, even 45 and over. Um, It was really questionable if they could be enforced under the Residential Tenancy Act. Um, So really what we've come down to, I think this is a better solution. And, And we've been, you know, people have been actually talking about this for a while. 55 and over makes it clean. We know their retirement communities. Um, and then uh, all of the ages below, it doesn't affect family status. Ah, okay. So that, and you're okay with that in terms of the CHOA position? That, that's, that makes sense, right? Well, I think, that, you know, that our membership across the board, there are very few stratas that actually had bylaws that were 19 and over or some other age below 55. Right. The, 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 really, the vast majority of them, if they were retirement communities, were 55 and over. But we've seen this sudden flurry of interest now um, on uh, 55 and over bylaws to try and limit the kind of exposure they may have to investors or to um, tenants. Yeah, I thought there might be. That's why I asked you in the first place. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the other consequences here, because uh, as these as this gets implemented, uh, again, a lot of a lot of stratas are, are small operations. Uh, and, you know, in, in some cases where rentals have been permitted, Tony, I was going to ask you about screening. Uh, for example, in some stratas, the, the strata council does the screening of potential renters in their building. Uh, that's all gone now, as I understand it, and it's simply up to the individual unit owner to make his or her choice about who's going to rent that property. Yeah, actually, strata corporations could never screen. Okay, that was always that was always prohibited. But the complication that's created from that is that under the Residential Tenancy Act, if there's a um, an attempt to terminate a tenancy, the tenancy is between the landlord and the tenant. The Strata Corporation, both under the Strata Property Act and the Residential Tenancy Act, um, do not create a legal interest for the Strata Corporation to step in here and in the shoes of the landlord. There's a there's a um, an implication in the Strata Property Act that if a landlord fails, that a Strata Corporation may make this application. But Residential Tenancy Act have never accepted it because there there really is no legal interest here for a Strata Corporation. And part of that it really is brought forward by the fact that there's no screening the strata has no no involvement in screening tenants so you know that's a i think that's a um a a bit of a complicated problem that we're going to find is probably have to get sorted out and i don't envy the residential tenancy act and their their task is daunting 
And and, uh, and we have the civil civil resolution tribunal now established by the government a few years ago. Uh, Is this probably going to be one of the busiest uh, quasi-courts in the province in the months ahead? Oh, it already is. So, (laughs) you know, there are five or ten decisions just for strata every week. So it's um, it is a busy jurisdiction. Um, The I think, um, you know, one of the challenges that we've been getting questions on from strata corporations is if we already have an application in the tribunal with respect to terminating a tenant to a tenancy that was unlawful and fines and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, Do we proceed? Well, at this point, uh, rentals are just simply no longer enforceable. Ah. So, you know, so now we are at the position where your bylaws really are done there. You know, there there's nothing you can do about enforcing rentals. Um, we're doing um, we're doing an open invitation webinar to the public on Wednesday about the new legislation and some of the things that people can expect. And we've been gathering all kinds of um, FAQs. So, you know, any listener, if they want, just goes to the CHOA website and they can just get the link for the um, inf- intro session on Wednesday. And we're going to do our best to help people through this. Uh, Okay, so it's a a webinar on Wednesday for anyone who uh, wants to learn more about the new rules affecting stratas and and who lives in them and and, uh, what governing uh, rules are going on. It's happening on Wednesday. It'll be a webinar on the CHOA website. So that address, Mr. Javentu, is? www.choa.bc.ca. Choa, C-H-O-A dot B-C dot C-A. And what time is the webinar scheduled to roll? 12 o'clock. I expect we'll be flooded, so we will probably run it over several weeks. Ah. And it will be. Rec- we're going to record it as well and post it to our YouTube website. Oh, that's terrific! But noon Wednesday is the is the webinar, and anyone who wants to join, just go to the website and sign up. Right. Absolutely. Well, so uh, troubling times. If you think you've got get pretty busy at the switchboard so far, I predict, Mr. Javentu, it's going to be twice as busy <laughs> next week. You can feel it coming, can't you, Tony? Oh, indeed we can. I think we have a we have a busy year or two ahead of us as everyone tries to navigate what this means. Exactly. Well, we do appreciate your getting up early on a Saturday morning to be with us, Tony, to help us navigate at least the few early days of this. Uh, and it's going to take a while to sort it out. And we do appreciate your comments. Uh, analysis. Sterling, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.